What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. As our regular listeners know, at Worlds Awaiting, we discuss a wide range of literacies. These include traditional literacies like reading and writing, but we also expand our conception of literacy into a wide range of other disciplines. It's easy to understand that to be literate in a specific discipline, you need to understand the conventions and skills related to that area. For example, some of the more fundamental skills in science are the ability to ask and answer questions. So in order to be scientifically literate, one needs to be able to develop the curiosity to be the kind of questioner a scientist is. But scientific literacy goes well beyond forming the skills in order to do good science. It is also about having the ability to consume science. A person who is literate in science is also one who is able to think critically about scientific issues. Being able to read about a scientific discovery in a newspaper and to be able to adjudge and assess the validity of the conclusions the information offers is one of the ways a person shows that they are scientifically literate. This kind of application implies that a person is informed about scientific issues when they can evaluate the quality of information and the sources that generate it and those that report it, and can come to their own conclusions so as to make their own personal arguments. This kind of literacy engagement extends oneself beyond personal concerns to participate in the broader conversations of a community. Being able to critically look at the world around us and generate new knowledge from our experiences is essentially what being literate means for all disciplines but particularly when we consider disciplines like science, which impact so much of what we do, being able to be a critical consumer not only helps us engage in that particular discipline, but it also enables us to be socially responsible contributors to the significant conversations of our day. So as you listen to our show and my thoughts here at Rachel's World, we hope you'll consider that literacy is more than what you thought it might be. Rituals and routines are important in family life. How do we build these rituals, these daily anchors that can tie us together? Answers might well include discussions at mealtimes, consuming media together, and of course, bedtime stories. Today, Rachel talks to Julie Nelson, who teaches children's literature and applied parenting at Utah Valley University, about what we can do to foster these rituals and a culture of literacy in our families. Nelson is the author of two books, Parenting with Spiritual Power, and Keep It Real and Grab a Plunger, 25 Tips for Surviving Parenthood. She has been featured in media such as the Wall Street Journal, Parents.com, and the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. Here's Rachel and Julie. We're in studio with Julie today. Welcome, Julie. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit today about reading and families and how does this interaction kind of happen? I think sometimes we think of reading as more of a solitary thing, but it can be 
and should be, in my estimation, a very community thing, particularly with our families. So what's important about having kids and families interact with books and reading? Well, you know, I teach at the university, and one of the things that we talk about in our family class is going back and saying, what are some rituals and routines that tied you to your family? What memories do you have? Because those are uh, very indicative of solid families. The children grow up knowing that there were things they could count on. Routines are very critical, to, especially young children, um, that these are anchors in their lives. And they can be weekly, monthly, but especially daily anchors that tie us to each other, that we are needed, that we bond with one another. Meal times is a very strong one, um, as well as bedtime and other times where we would be sharing books. Um, mealtime is a wonderful time around the table to discuss literature. What have you read today? What was something interesting that you learned about today? Um, so there's this sharing of things that, are, that matter um, that we learn about and share and engage with. But also many of my students talk about that the thing that really mattered to them the most was besides the mealtimes together was the tucking in at night. And that always involved books. Um, books were the the uh, ending of the day to kind of draw all of our the the, the the clutter that happened all the day and kind of just review it and process it often through the life of someone on a page because they may not even be able to tell you something happened at school today that really bothered me until it comes out in the book that you're reading another character is struggling with this and they say you know what mom something like that happened with me at school today and that's happened time and time again with my own children and so it helps you to create this trust environment. It's a safe place. Um, and at the end of the day, we wind together and we talk about what happened. And sometimes kids are a little bit um, uneasy about sharing some things in their own life. But then as you bring it up in the books, they talked about it through other characters and their lives. And I think that's an important thing to note that these stories, these books help us get into that emotional place yes. where we feel safe. So is there anything we can do to help build that sense of safety, particularly as we're reading and sharing books. Yeah, I think um, that if we uh, talk about the characters and how did they solve their problems and what were some things that they're dealing with, then it's it's a little bit easier secondhand to talk about other people. Um, and then it's, it's not so threatening for some kids to then say, oh, someone else had this problem. And and now I can see how I can deal with that same problem myself and maybe open up a little bit more. Some kids are very, very pr- transparent, and they'll just tell everything. Um, and that will just reinforce it on the pages as well. But it really does create this mo- emotional bonding. It really helps kids also to know what is our family culture. Um, and every family should have a culture of literacy. I don't care if you love sports or music or dance or whatever else that you love to do. M- making food together, wonderful. Do those. But every family should have a culture of literacy. Literacy is the single number one, through research, the number one indicator of success in life. Um, if a child is literate and if they have a home that reinforces the, the culture of literacy. And so um, it's, in fact, they even say in the Mer- American Academy of Pediatrics, their 2014 policy statement says that reading it daily at home in the early years is essential for optimal brain development and robust language ac- acquisition. So even as infants' brains grow and make those neural collect- connections, um, they hear the repeated sounds over and over again, even from, you know, babies. Um, that that's essential for the necessary decoding later on and comprehension later on. And so every family should have that as their culture of saying, if I want my children to do well in school, I better be creating this this home environment of of literacy. So how do we create that culture of literacy, particularly if we don't feel like we already have one in our family? What, what can we do? Routines. I think, you know, do you brush your ch- teeth every night? You know, I think most parents would say yes. 
Um, we do put on some pajamas, although my kids sometimes would just rather just sleep on their clothes. I'm like, no, please put some pajamas on. They, they do something like that. Can we not incorporate into our daily life just something that naturally occurs where we brush our teeth, next we, you know, get into bed and we read, uh, you know, read a, read a book. I say to parents, do you, you know, they say, oh, I don't have any time for that. Okay. Do you, and they have more than one child. How am I going to do 20 minutes a day with this child? 20, I don't have this time. Like, well, then combine them together. Um, kids love to have this community reading and read the older book because the younger kids appreciate the older books. But also older, older children sometimes love those little picture books as well. So, you know, mix it up. And it's okay for the little kids, the, the, the preschoolers, to be listening to chapter books. And they enjoy the language and the, 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 uh, the complex words. And when you are in the car and other areas, I say to parents, you know what? It doesn't have to be at home all the time. Sometimes bedtime is just chaos and just like, go to bed. I know I, I need you to just go to bed. And we don't have that warm, cuddly time. But do you ever drive your kids around? Can you not put a book on tape? Um, don't get that TV monitor down, please. There are other times that you can incorporate reading and music or anything that's lyrical into a child's life that you can just put in. Or if you just need to put on tape a book on tape rather than you being there, that's fine too. Um, my family had talk about emotional bonding. My I, one of the you know when we talk about routines and things that matter to children, and I t- asked my students this. Well, one of the the anchors in my life that was just phenomenal was we decided first. I don't know. My parents decided one year we're going to read where the red fern grows. We're all dog lovers. We had a dog at the time. We read that book. We every night we got gathered around together. We would take turns and read a little bit from that book. I was very, I was younger, so it was mostly my parents that read. When we got to the end, I have never seen my dad break down and cry, but he did, and that's the one time I've seen him break down and cry. And I was, I was blown away to see my dad talk about emotional connection. And then he passed the book to my mom because he couldn't keep reading. My mom read a few sentences more. She broke down and cried. Passed it to my older sister. She read a couple sentences and she broke down and cried. Then it came to me and I was all choked up. I couldn't read a word. That, that moment had such an impact on me. I cannot tell you how important that was in my life. And that memory is, treasure, is a treasure to me. And my mom later on, um, like a year later, she gave me the book, Where the Red Fern Rose grows by Wilson Rawls. And then inscribed in the beginning, happy birthday to a very special 10-year-old who's been on the waiting list for this book for a long time. And to read this special book we read together and then dated it and put mom and dad love you. This book is is priceless to me, not just because of the book's sake, but because the memory came with it. That is amazing. Thank you for sharing that, Julie. I I have similar memories of of (laughs) that kind of literacy culture in my own life. And I think that when I talk to people, they, they see that literacy culture in their own lives. And one of the things that strikes me about your story is this kind of sense of shared literacy, because it's not just about the mother reading. It's about the father and the siblings and even the grandparents and extending that out. So there really is this sense of shared responsibility for making this happen. Yes. And my mother, who is, I've learned so much from her. um, And we can talk about more later. But one thing that kind of pops out to me is that my mother, because of this culture, we have a family culture of literacy. Guess what she does when she doesn't live here? I'm from Oregon. When she comes to visit us every single time, she come out here to, to visit me and my children growing up every year least once a year. She packed her bags with the normal stuff, this, you know, the clothes and the shampoo, but she always packed children's books. 
And so when grandma came, she'd open up her bag and we all, it was like Mary Poppins, right? And you pull out the books and grandma would sit on the couch and she would share the new books with her children and bring one to them. Now, can I just tell you how meaningful that was to my kids that we had this culture of literacy? Yeah. And I think, you know, in my own life, I'm an aunt and I take my nephews with me when I go to the library Mm -hmm. and, and just those small things. I think sometimes... We feel intimidated by this sense of literacy. We look at it kind of as a big thing, but it really is about those small traditions and rituals that we have in our family that make the biggest impact and the biggest difference. Absolutely. And, and from a child, a baby on a lap of a parent, we have a baby who doesn't even know what you're saying, but they're seeing a book and they're feeling love. And then by association, that child's going to feel love toward the book when you're not even there because of the effect that that had. So it's, it's this, this behavioral type thing. You know, I'm into behavioral science. Well, the book now is the love because of what you transmitted through that experience. And so it happens again and again as they grow up. They see the book and all of a sudden the flood of memory. That's dad. That was that moment. And they can almost smell dad. It's a sensory type thing um, when they see that book. And maybe after you're gone and all of us don't last on this earth much, you know, for too many years, that book will remain and they will have a sensory experience with you and a memory that will be lasting because of that, of that physical connection. And I love that sense of the physicality and yet the emotion that's involved in all of this and being able to have a young child on our lap and the cuddling and all of those things do transfer between these two emotions of loving what we're reading and then loving the person that we're sharing that moment with. Thank you so much, Julie. This has been an enlightening conversation, and I hope that our listeners will now go out and start trying to build those cultures of literacy in their own families. Yes. Rachel talking with Julie Nelson about how we can build a culture of literacy in our own families. Next, Dr. Eula Monroe, a longtime professor of mathematics education at BYU, talks about taking the fear out of math. Many of us may have it, children included. Monroe discusses how connecting math with literature just might do the trick. We'll also be getting a few book recommendations from her. Eula Monroe is the author of Mathematics Dictionary, the easy, simple, fun guide to help math phobics become math lovers, and has another book in progress designed to help math instructors as they work to reduce math anxiety in children. Here's Rachel and Eula. We're excited to have Dr. Eula Monroe today with us. She is a professor of mathematics education here at Brigham Young University. And we share a passion that I am so excited to talk to you about today. We both love children's books. And so that's our passion that we share. Now, you have a passion for math. I don't quite share that. But I one of the things I'm so excited about to learn more from you today is how can we connect those two? How can we use children's books to help teach math or to expose people to math and to maybe make them love math a little bit more? So, Eula, tell us a little bit about how you connect those two. How do you connect children's literature and math? Oh, what an exciting thing to talk about. Uh, Well, first of all, those who are really good children's book authors know how to, oh, they just know how to do things with language that that I almost envy. (laughs) Me too. Me too. I do not find many children who don't like a good book. But when children love good literature, and by the way, most teachers love good children's literature too, I believe. And when we select really good books, we can select a variety of books that we want to. For instance, recently, or no, several years ago, 
uh, recently I wrote wrote up what we did with it in a differing way, but we worked with the book called Working Cotton. Uh, well, one that you would not think. It's a story written by Sherilyn Williams. Shirley Ann Williams is her name. They, she's called Sheelan in the story. And it tells of her day as a migrant worker child in the mm-hmm. cotton fields of California. And so we use that uh, that not as a social justice book, although it could very easily be used as a social justice bo- book and for discussion of equity and those sorts of things, but actually for the uh, beautiful vocabulary about time that it evoked, sunrise, sunset, dawn, dusk, and then we do do built on that to sequencing time activities, and from that we did some other things. It was lovely, lovely what those children were able to do and how much they understood some really fairly difficult concepts of time. You know, I think that that is beautiful because to me, one of the powers of great literature is the sense of making connections. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's what a great piece of literature does. It connects us to the world around us. Mm -hmm. And I often think sometimes we forget how much we are connected to these kinds of mathematical concepts like time or, or spatial relationships or even this process of thinking. So how do you think the addition of the literature made the learning more rich? I think because it lives to lives for them. And sometimes mathematics is seen as something out there, whereas a children's story, if you get really into it, it's not out there. It's in here. It's part of you. The heart, the emotion. Uh-huh, mm-hmm. uh-huh. Yeah. And, there are the, and mathematics doesn't have to be out there, even with even without children's literature. It can it can evoke the same kind of aesthetic beauty and so forth, but it's a little slower in coming for most people. <laughs> uh, in fact, I know many adults today who would see very little aesthetic beauty, but only utilitarian view, uh, beauty in mathematics. But the, the books bring that aestheticism there many times. Well, let me tell you a little bit about... Uh, the history of children's literature and mathematics. We've just recent, myself and some undergraduate students have just recently worked on completing uh, an annotated bibliography of all that's out there that we could find that was of national to international circulation uh, in regard to helping children learn mathematics through children's literature. And I believe the fir- very first piece was written you can tell my age by my saying this, fairly recently, 1969 or 8 or 7. Well, the next piece was written in the early 70s, and there wasn't much more written until the 80s, and one of uh, a piece that I wrote with a colleague was one of those that came out in the 80s. And then in the 90s and 2000s and so on, there, uh, there have been uh, a good many more. So we reviewed those, uh, the ones that were research-oriented, that had a research project to them. We reviewed those, and guess what? We found that achievement, as you would expect, achievement was number one. It helps comprehension in mathematics, just as it helps uh, comprehension in in, uh, literacy. But first achievement, now, with this uh, day and time that we're in regarding accountability, 
if we cannot use something to help children achieve mathematics a little better, people will argue that we cannot do it during mathematics time. And I think that's probably a legitimate argument, you know. But interest and attitude, number two. So the child's interest and attitude in mathematics was improved. child's interest and attitude in mathematics, measurably so in some of the studies. Some of the studies were qualitative, some were quantitative. But yes, interest and attitude. And then uh, when in this era of huge emphasis on STEM careers, but also the current... Uh, Real, the realiza- realization that uh, mathematics anxiety is even present among very young children. In fact, I had a graduate student who just did a study on that, and it is prevalent, well, at least present with and measurable with very young children. And uh, uh, with the need for people not to let mathematics be a critical filter that keeps them out of or lets them into certain careers that they're that it cannot that they should not as it is it does do that but for them it should not happen because mathematics for each of us because we should develop the interest and attitude enough in mathematics that we certainly can serve and in ways that we choose to serve without having that to be a barrier. Even if we don't find the joy in mathematics, which some people come to find, blessedly, and, and, and it's becoming more widespread with some of our current teaching methods, I believe. Mathematics classrooms are much happier places to be. And because children are more involved in their own learning and are feeling much more progress. But Involving children's literature puts that extra plus of boosting interest and attitude toward mathematics. I love that research, and I think that that's so powerful for our listeners to connect to, that it is about achievement, but it's also about attitude and Mm -hmm. interest. And connecting that can help children, particularly who may not be as interested in math, to find some segue into that. And there's so many wonderful books out there that are available. I know some of them teach mathematics concepts more directly, and then Uh others, like you've mentioned, teach them more abstractly. So maybe mention a couple of your favorites for us. What are some of your favorite mathematics children's books? Oh, well, I love any mathematics children, any children's book that you can talk about the mathematics in, that whether it's explicitly so or not. Now, uh, uh, I love the quilt books, for instance, in mathematics. All the patterning and symmetry, uh, the freedom quilt. And it relates you to the whole social uh, and uh, uh, societal issues of Civil War times. Uh, uh, there is a Hawaii quilt book that's a beautiful story of a little girl who gets an Hawaiian quilt from her grandmother who is Hawaiian, but she doesn't think it's as pretty as the quilt she's used to on the mainland. And then I'm working on a project now with an older book, but a delightful one. It's called Shoda and the Star Quilt, and uh, and it's uh, Native American. And I- I've just got off on quilt books, so just all over the place, you know, all kinds of books that you can love. But if you really want to know some uh, some uh, really good books to use, NCTM, National Council of Teachers of Mathematics, 
by next year, if not before then, we'll have a website that lists children's books for various age levels and what they help to promote. And right now we're at 1,600 titles, but there'll be a lot more on there. But there are just so many of them I love. But I don't there are some I don't love, too. Well, tell, tell us quickly about one you don't love and why. Well, you can imagine this. If a book has to have a Hershey bar with it <laughs> to make it a good book to read, then it's not a good children's literature book, in my opinion. Or if it has to have Cheerios to count with it. Those might be books that you would buy and use with your children, and I'm not saying you shouldn't, but just don't think you're getting literature at the time. You are getting mathematics ideas pasted between two hard covers, and you're missing the chance for a good literacy experience at the same time. As long as you know that, go ahead and use those and know that counting Cheerios is an okay thing to do, or dividing Hershey bars up is an okay thing to do, because they're both math. Mathematical. Don't, just don't expect the beauty of, of the literacy experience there. I agree entirely that there's beautiful, gorgeous children's literature out there, like those beautiful quilt books you mentioned mm-hmm. that can be used to teach mathematics, but we don't have to get didactic in these these other books and to do the same thing. So, so looking for those beautiful books that can help us expand our vision of math is a great way to connect. And right now, some of the best uh, sources that I have, lists of books that I have seen, well, there are a couple of books from NCTM, but they're dated now. They don't have the newest ones in them. Uh, When we will have quite a few of good suggestions, I'm not trying to sell uh, the book that I'm writing. I will let NCTM do that if they choose to, and we hope they will, because we think it's worthy to have. But there'll be a lot of children's books listed in there. So look for publication no later than next year uh, with Monroe and Young as the editors, as the primary editors, and we have two associate editors as well, Fuentes and Hayworth. And it'll be a new publication from NCTM, and it has lots of children's books in there and how to use them. Some of these children's books are old. Some are new. Some are in between. Have fun with them. Oh, and I think there's so much fun that we can have in classrooms and homes with children's literature and math and books that connect. And there's lots of great resources out there for for parents to check out, and we'll link to them on our website as well. Um, And even just, you know, talking to your local librarians and other sources are great places to find this wealth of literature. Thank you so much, Yulia, for your time today. Thank you. Eula Monroe talking with Rachel about how to take the fear out of math through literature. We finish up the show today with Zach Ireland, a sound editor at BYU Radio and a biochemistry student at BYU. I asked Zach where he developed his love for literature. I'd say it was a mix of my siblings and my parents. I'm the youngest uh, of five in my family, so, you know, I wasn't the first one to be read to, uh, and... I'd have to say, in part, that love came from just older brothers. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I attribute a lot of uh, my love for reading to them. In school, they they tell you, uh, read this book before, you know, two months from now. And uh, as a younger brother, looking at them, you know, being able to engage and experience stories alone, 
Uh, we didn't watch much TV at my house, you know. So being able to do something independently like that was liberating in a way. So I wanted to start reading as soon as possible, and I did. You know, there are always books available, and we had a little library, and uh, I'd say that I attribute, yeah, my love to reading for that, that positive peer pressure of older siblings. I mean, first you learn to read, and then you read to learn. What are some of your favorite books from childhood? I know you mentioned when you were a little kid, sure. you liked The, the Hungry Caterpillar by um, <laughs> yeah. Eric Carl. Right. I mean, it's such a simple story. I mean, the illustrations are, are different, right? They're kind of that uh, waxy, abstract kind of... They're not worried about trying to seem as real as possible. Uh, and I, I'd like to say that the story teaches, you know, a lesson. It's you're a caterpillar now. It's it's really simple, you know. He eats one, he eats two, he eats three. It's that repetition. Um, but the caterpillar <laughs> grows and then turns into a that butterfly. Um, it's full potential at the end. Um, but for me, it wasn't so much the message until later when I was looking back. Um, I'd say it was the you know the the energy that could go into the story. Uh, a well-written children's story should be able to be lived through. You know, my mom or my dad was able to put the sounds, um, you know, in between each page. Um, And we use the phrase a lot, but to bring it to life, it means a lot. BYU student Zach Ireland, who is a sound engineer at BYU Radio, talking about where his passion for reading came from. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.